0: Man, great to be with you guys on this last morning together. Um, we've got a couple more sessions, this one and the following one. Um, and I uh, wanna just quickly just update you. Last night we you know, we had Vic and Tanya up here and we prayed our guts out for Amber, their little girl, and, um, and you know, we extended an opportunity to us as a, as a group of family, um, church family, and, and family in, in advance to, to come around them and help them in this uh, financial need that they had. Uh, the need was 10,000. And um, I know it's more than that now, but like the last number I heard was um, $10,147. It's awesome, man. It's awesome. So we continue to pray for Amber's healing. We continue to pray for her little friend to get saved. We continue to pray for all these things, but um, it's a great chance for us to just model that we are, we care about each other um, and we want to do life together, the highs and the lows of life together. And that's what partnership looks like and feels like. And so um, we're gonna, we've been talking about what it looks like to lead in exile, and we've been talking about some different elements of exile, and we've been praying for different places of exile and all that, and, and um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about kind of what kind of leaders we need in exile um, for the next little bit here. Um, you know, when, when, you know, different seasons require different kinds of leaders. Um, peacetime leadership is a different kind of leadership to wartime leadership, and um, you know, as we're talking about this kind of concept of exile, I, I, I want to just suggest to you that there's a certain kind of leader that's good for this, um, and, and and someone who understands exile, who who, who can lead through it. Um, if you don't know that you're in exile, uh, then you're likely just to bring people through and give them influence um, who maybe shouldn't be in leadership. I want to just kind of remind you of something that Brian Recker said on the, the first evening. Uh, he, he mentioned a he said a sentence along the lines of, you know, that how we could be in danger of committing pastoral malpractice. Um, And I don't know about you, but that's a scary thought. The term malpractice uh, means uh, professional negligence. And um, it's just, it's not, it's not something anyone wants attributed to them. Um, Certainly if you're a, you know, in the medical profession, you wouldn't want to be labeled as committing malpractice. And um, I think that 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 is a really appropriate way to consider the kind of leadership that we are to give in this season of exile. We need leaders who can lead well in exile. Um, one of my greatest tragedies over the last 10 years, uh, not just leading One Harbor, but also helping and other churches and, and you know, befriending lots of other pastors and leaders is, is seeing the, what the wrong kind of leader can do. Um, you know, we, we put people in leadership in churches for all kinds of reasons. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of times it's just sentiment. We like them. They've been around a while. Gosh darn it, let's just give them a shot. You know, that's just sentiment. Um, everyone else likes them. They're related to half the church. They've been here since before I was here. You know, that, all those things, that's just sentiment. They really want to. I mean, what could it hurt? Like, that's just sentiment, right? So that can be a reason that we bring through um, leaders. Uh, Desperation, its another one. Man, I don't know if they're the right fit, but gosh, we just need somebody. Maybe, fingers crossed, you know? Like, it's like a Hail Mary kind of thing. That's a a reason why a lot of people end up um, in leadership. Previous ministry experience. You almost feel wrong for not making them a leader. I mean, they've been a leader longer than you've been alive. How could you not? And, and so a lot of times, I, I wonder if we surveyed, you know, churches in America and, and kind of surveyed how and why people got into leadership. I, I wonder how many of those, what percentage of those leaders are there because of sentiment or desperation or experience? Another reason could be education, you know, and, and. know. Um, you know, they, they went to the Bible college that we get everybody from, and they got a degree, so they must be must be great. Um, and so these become the rationales for why we put people into leadership, but um, those those reasons won't give us the kind of leaders that we need. Um, and I, I think if we look over our shoulder, um, the last several decades, at least um, in, in American culture, North American culture, and in, in the church, um, you know, a, a lot, I think a lot of a lot of the leaders that we've put in place have caused us to be ineffective. And so what kind of leadership do we need in exile? Um, there's a lot to say about this. I'm not gonna pretend to say everything about this, but I keep getting drawn back to this passage in Philippians that we're gonna read here in just a minute. I think it gives us some of the really big themes. And I, I imagine that all of you are gonna be checking off all of the boxes on all these things, but it's more so for you to, to remember these things if you've forgotten them, but also to be thinking about the types of people that we give influence to. You, you, your default mode, my default mode, is to, is to give away influence, to give away leadership based on sentiment, based on desperation, based on experience. That's our default mode, and we've got to push back on that because th- that may not be the right type of person to lead in the season of exile. So um, just, just briefly, as we find ourselves in, in Philippians chapter 2, um, you know, Philippi was this colony of Rome, and, and Paul's He's calling them in this letter to to live a life that stands out, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, he says in chapter one. Um, He's just giving them the most epic reminder of what Jesus is willing to do. He was willing to become nothing, to make himself nothing, to empty himself so that he could die the sacrificial death for us. And then to to rise from the grave for us, to to hold the name that is above every name. And so this is kind of how this this, this, this verse that we're about to read, this is what, what, what precedes it. And then he says this in in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, because of how amazing Jesus is, because of what he's done, because he has the name above every name, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, uh, what are some of the elements here that we see? What are some of the aspects of what it means to be a a good leader in exile? Uh, The first thing I think that that needs to be said is that we need leaders who are clear on their own need of the gospel. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Growing up, I felt like a lot of the leaders that I was around, um, they were good at working out everyone else's salvation. But it was honestly hard for me to imagine that they'd ever done anything wrong. And I think that was a kind of leadership that we projected for a long time was that those in charge were people not who had wrestled with sin, not who were currently wrestling with sin, but people who would just never wrestle with sin. And they're the type of people we need because, you know, just their whole life was just unscathed when it comes to sin. It was hard to imagine me growing up. I, I, I struggled to imagine that a lot of these people in leadership but everyone had a bad thought, let alone acted on it. I'll tell you a couple of my experiences um, leading over the last 10 years, I've you know, routinely, I'll throw myself under the bus and talk about how terrible I am and, you know, you know my own need of mercy and grace. And, and, and almost every time, someone will pull me aside and say something like, please don't do that again. I mean, one, one person, I mean, he, he does it out of love. I, I, I mean, I know he means well, but he says, he's like, no one wants to hear that stuff about you. No one wants to think that you think like that. No one wants to think you struggle with that. That's not what we want you to do. We want you to be above all that. Um, the, the other side of that is I, there was a guy who I'd known growing up. I hadn't seen him in forever. And he visited one harbor on a Sunday. He lives somewhere else. And he, he came up afterwards, just tears running down his face. And he said, he said, man, he said, it felt like you were down there in the crowd, like you were just one of us. Like you were saying, Jesus is amazing, but we were just one of us. He's like, I've never experienced anything like that. That's bad. That's bad when you can go to church for decades and, and, and your, your experience continually is that the person leading is not someone who's down in the crowd going, man, I'm right here with you guys. Jesus is amazing. I need him. We need him. That's, that's not helpful, right? We don't need another generation who are leaders because they've been around a while or they went to a seminary or they feel entitled. We, we need leaders who, who, who know they needed the gospel, confident, that they needed salvation. Confident that they need to fight for their own relationship with God. Leaders who are clear in their own need of the gospel. We don't need just leaders who are good at telling other people out there their need of the gospel. We need leaders who who are who know who are aware currently aware of their own need of the gospel. And I'll, I'll tell you guys, I you know I grew up um, really kind of. Um, around a, a, a morality culture, and I, I didn't really reckon with how much I needed the gospel. I knew my brother did, because he was a drug addict. I knew, you know, like, you know other people I knew did, because, you know, they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff, but it wasn't until I really, I really was confronted by the actual gospel myself, face-to-face, that I realized that thing of how wretched I really was. I mean, I would sing the same songs that everyone else was singing, I was thinking, I hope someone's listening, I just wasn't thinking about me. I hope I'm listening. To be a good leader in exile, we need to be very aware of what a wreck we were and self-aware of our own own ongoing need of Jesus. Leaders who are dripping with thankfulness for what God did for them. So we need to know our own need of the gospel. The second thing is very closely tied to that. We need leaders who are confident in God's work in them. That's what he says in verse 13. He says, For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. That's the other side of the gospel, right? We, we need that one arm that's, that's the, that my own neediness of the gospel, and then the other arm being God's ability to save me. Right? We don't want to just be like, oh, yeah, I'm terrible. I'm a wreck. I need all kinds of help. I hope I make it, no, God saves. That's the other side of that. And so it's, I need the gospel, and it's, it's God's at work in me. We, we need to make sure that, that the leaders that are coming through, that, that those people that we're putting influence have a, have a hand on both of these tensions of the gospel. You're worse off than you thought, I think as Keller says, and he's better than you imagined, right? And why is this important in this land of exile that we lead in? Because the place that we're, that we're in is a land full of opportunities to make you incredibly insecure. The moment that you struggle, the moment that you fail, the moment there's any sign of weakness, the culture wants to pile on you and and make you terribly insecure. It's also the same culture that wants to give you endless opportunities to put your confidence in yourself when you're doing well. And so we need leaders who who know their own neediness neediness of the gospel and are just so confident of God's own work in them. We don't take credit when things are going well. We don't despair and you know, given to all kinds of, you know, unhelpful depression and when, when things are going bad. No, we, we, we're resolved that God is at work in us. I love how um, Paul refers to them. He says, therefore, beloved. Man, there's something about a, a leader when he knows he's beloved. He knows that, that, that God loves him. That God, that, I mean, we sang last night, Jesus loves me. Man, that's not something that just children need to hear. That is something leaders need to hear. Leaders need to remember. Because ministry will challenge you at every corner to to doubt that. Don't bring through a leader who's just good at preaching the gospel to others but doesn't know how to apply the gospel to their own selves. So those are a bit general but essential um, and when you've got a leader who knows their own need of the gospel and knows God's own work in them, is confident of God's work in them, you're well on your way here. But then there's a few other things I think that are helpful to mention. The, the next one is leaders who aren't difficult to lead. Again, if I make eye contact with you, no one sent me a list of <laughs> photos of people to stare at. Um, but uh, he says, do all things without rumbling or questioning. Can you even imagine? what well, that must be like to meet someone like that. I'm not like that. All things, um, that's, just, that's just counter human nature. Uh, what, what, is, what do kids do? They, they, they grumble and question everything, and yet Paul's calling for, for us to be the kinds of people here who resist that innate way of thinking, that we aren't difficult people. We're not grumbling and questioning all the time, there's a lot to be said about this, but I want to focus in on just one aspect of this exile, this land of exile that we live in. It's a hypercritical culture. And that is the cheap seats of leadership. The armchair quarterbacks. Um, you know, the American Idol kind of concept where we can, you know, sit at home with a big bag of Doritos, can't sing a lick, and we can just destroy some child on TV in front of tens of millions of people. Oh, she sang out a key, she's off tempo, I think. What does that mean again? Like we, 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 we're just, we celebrate critics. We, we celebrate that, that, that critical spirit. And I think in churches, if we're not careful, we can mistake a critical attitude as something worth commending. We might think that someone who's being critical just cares. Maybe that's why they're so critical. Maybe they actually care. Maybe they're being critical because they're wise. Maybe they see something we don't see. We can also assume that someone who's really good at being critical might actually be someone who could do something about the problem. But too often, critics are just critics. Too often, hypercritical people have nothing to offer but negativity and opinions. I'll tell you, when I was um, most critical was when I hadn't ever let anything. I had it all figured out. I would criticize people's marriages, and I was single. And I was like, you guys are doing it all wrong. <laughs> it's easy to have it all figured out until it's your turn to try. And I, I just wanna say that I know what it feels like to be in a desperate place leading a church and feeling like you don't have the leaders you need and you're hoping for, and and then someone comes along and they're really critical and it sounds a bit negative, but you're like, you know, I don't know, they could be right. And I, I know what it's like to give those people influence and opportunity. And I've seen how that works out. And it's not good. It's not good. When you make someone a leader, you give them a voice. And the last thing that someone who's hypercritical needs is a microphone. Criticism is a powerful voice in exile. If you think back to the Exodus, just the constant assault on Moses's character, on essentially even on God's character. Grumbling and disputing, they get you an ear in the land of exile that we live in, but they make you unqualified for kingdom service. And I'll add to this, exile is hard enough, if possible, it's great if you can lead through exile with people that you actually like to be around. It's already hard enough. You don't wanna be ducking and diving your leaders' meetings. You don't wanna be faking an illness for an elders' meeting. It's just, you just don't need that. It's just, it's just, it's just draining. The next thing um, I think that's worth saying is that we we need leaders in exile who are marked by lives of holiness. This is a sobering topic. Um, Leaders much better than me, much more gifted than me, much more gifted than all of us in the room have shipwrecked their lives. And I think what we see here, he says in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation. It's interesting there. We're in the midst of this crookedness, but we're to stand out. Now, there is an alternative way to stand out. Uh, We see in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, verse one, Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind not even tolerated among the pagans. You're doing it wrong when you are standing out because you're making the crooked generation around you uncomfortable with your sin, right? That, we've gone in the wrong direction at that point. Over the past several decades though, at least here in North America, we've stood out because of our hypocrisy or our lack of empathy and care and concern. I mean, we've stood out, but for all the wrong reasons. And this is a call to stand out, living lives of holiness. I love how 1 Peter puts it in chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, this reminder, this is who we are. We're just nomads. We're just exiles. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Just constant assault, constant temptation. Abstain from that stuff, keeping your conduct, listen to this phrase, among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God, God on the day of visitation. And God's help to help us and to help those who lead alongside us to live lives of holiness. To obey even when no one else is watching. I think that's an interesting way that Paul puts it there in in chapter um, 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... If you're a parent, I know we're not all parents in the room, but if you're a parent, man, isn't it like, isn't it like mind-blowing when your kids do the right thing and you're not there to watch it and see it? Like, we, um, we have these little cameras up in their rooms that was from when they were little babies, and we just haven't gotten rid of them. We're going to send it to college with them, hide it up in their room. <laughs> we, we can see what's going on in there, and I think they've just, it's like become so part of the room that they... Don't realize the little green light up in the corner, you know? This is sounding creepy. They're still small. Um, but when you see them, like, playing well and sharing and apologizing and cleaning up, it's just, like, crazy that they would do the right thing when you're not threatening them or, you know, bribing them. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy when they actually do the right thing. It's just this mind-blowing moment. Paul's like, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear that you're—I you're, know you're doing this stuff when I'm around all right, Paul is here, everybody, keep it together. I know you're doing that. Paul's like, I, I, wanna, I wanna hear that when I'm gone, you're just, you're, this is what you're acting like. You're just living this life of holiness. We can't discount the necessity for holiness, but there's a context for holiness that I think is worth bringing up as well. There's an approach to pursuing holiness that isn't helpful in exile, but for a long time in North America, we've tried. It's the approach to holiness of fundamentalism. It's a retreat from culture. It's an attempt to build a bubble where we um, live lives of holiness because we never encounter sin, so we think. And that is also not the kind of leader we need in exile. We need leaders who, while they fight for a life of holiness, they, they do so in the context of darkness. They lead um, by impacting the darkness around them, not by running from it. Corey so brilliantly spoke on this yesterday that The church is not meant to retreat from culture, to run away in exile, we're meant to run into it. And we see this um, in this Philippians passage, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among whom. It's the same phrase that's mentioned up in in, in 1 Peter 2. Among the Gentiles. We need leaders who, who are among the people who need the gospel. Jesus was among the people who needed him. Jesus was at parties, Jesus was in the marketplace. He didn't hide in an office all week long, drowning in commentaries, only to emerge on Sundays with a halo over his head, give a perfect three-point sermon, cast the net, and then drift away into the office again. That's not the life that Jesus lived. And yet for a long time, we've tried to lead in in this place of exile by continually retreating, withdrawing from those people who need the gospel. I think I think a lot of Christians in America would buy their groceries at a Christian bookstore if they could. Like anything they could do to never have to meet someone who doesn't know Jesus. You can't lead in exile if you're not among the people who need the gospel. We we look for this with potential leaders. We we want to know who it is that they're reaching. Who is it that they're praying for? Who is it they're befriending? Every now and again, we'll do that conversation as an eldership team. We'll say, okay, this year, who do you have faith for? And it's just interesting to see how God's made us unique missionaries in all kinds of different ways. Ryan Marshall, who was up leading worship this morning, um, he, he's got this, like, he's good at golf. I make fun of him endlessly, so it'd be nice for me to actually give him a compliment. He is really good at golf, all right, fair enough. I think the way he dresses is ridiculous when he plays golf. (laughs) I think he sweats profusely when he plays golf. But he is good at it. And um, so there, compliment given. Um, That's how you do it, everybody, right there. Um, No, he is insanely good at it. And that means people want to play golf with him. And you know some of the people who want to play golf with him are people who don't think Christianity is true at all and they love playing golf with him, and they know what he does. They know what he does for a living all the time. What, like he, and he's not quiet about, he loves Jesus, right? And these people want to be around him. And so this is a little mission field for him, and that, that's awesome, it's good for me to know, so I can like pray for him and encourage him and mock him and encourage him. And, <laughs> but we wanna know that, we, we wanna know, like we, we want it's good to know on your leadership team who's, who's reaching who, that, that should be a qualification they should have friends who don't know Jesus. And it would be good to know what those friends who don't know Jesus say. This is an interesting verse. I wonder if we ever really think about. In 1 Peter 3, Paul's laying out the qualifications for elders and overseers, and he says in verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Now, there's a couple things here. That at least means that he's thought of. And how many leaders... Do we have in churches across North America who no one who's an outsider would even think about them, let alone think well of them? This, this requires that we are among the people. That is a non-negotiable for leading in exile. You're among them, and it would be really great to know what they thought about you. We actually, I'll, I'll give this away. We, we threw this into the ACPC rewrite as a possible um, kind of, reference for people who want to be an ACPC. I'm, I'm spoiling this right now, but we said one of, one of the references we would like to have is someone who's not a Christian who's their friend. Just a little short paragraph, what you think about them. What, what do people say? And it might be that they go, I don't have any non-Christian friends. Okay, cool. Let's chat about that. That's something to work on, right? Or it might be, here's what my non-Christian friend said. Eh, what do I do about this? All right, we'll work on it, you know? <laughs> But wouldn't it be interesting to know? We must be helping leaders see this as essential in exile. And guys, I just can't talk about this enough. And I'll tell you, as you, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably hyper this way. You know, there's other, others of these areas that I need to really grow in more. But this one, just it's just how God made me. But I'll even tell you, um, even if that's, if that's you, if you're like me in that way, it gets harder as as the church grows in size or in age, as seasons change, it gets harder. Um, you can find yourself more and more, you know, the, the workload of ministry piles up and the, the amount of church people who need something piles up and the amount of church functions to go to piles up. And before long, you haven't hung out with somebody who doesn't know Jesus in years. And I just wanna say that, man, that's, that's not helpful, and I, I want to I push on you, especially those of you who do lead churches. You know, I think that's one of our, our responsibilities is helping to look at a, a calendar, a church calendar, look at the rhythms and go, hey, we can't schedule this to the point where no one can ever be friends with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Oh, you guys better get out there and be missionaries, and every night of the week, we want you at the building from seven to nine. You know, like, <laughs> okay. We we'll want to be leaders who are among those who are in exile around us who need the gospel. We we'll want to shine as lights in the world, but to shine, you actually have to have one last thing here. And that's uh, we need to be leaders who hold fast to the truth, holding fast to the word of life, Paul says in verse 16. We live in a time when truth is being abandoned. And a lot of the reason for the abandonment is, man, this, this culture we live in, it just, it's just not relevant anymore, it's sentiment, it's people walking away from orthodoxy, people who some of us know and love very much. And um, for some of those people, they're committed as being courageous for doing this. They're committed as being um, loving of, of others for doing this. And my heart breaks for them and I pray for them, but we must resist this temptation. We must hold fast to the word of life. I remember um, I had one chance to meet John Piper. I was terrified. It was like, um, it was like you know like the Lord of the Rings movie? the Eye of Sauron, or whatever. That's what I felt like. He was gonna see into my soul. I didn't want anyone around to hear what he was about to say. Um, and I, I didn't have much of a question, I just blurted out, you know, hey, um, what would you say to, what, what's your biggest fear for my generation? That's what I said. And I mean, on, a, on the spot, he looked at me and said, your generation will forfeit all the truth that my generation fought for, and you'll do it because of relationships that was like nine years ago and I have watched that be true again and again and again. It's tempting, waves and wind of culture raging around us, it's tempting to abandon truth and exile but it would be like being lost at sea in a storm and chucking the map, the compass and cutting the anchor. This phrase, hold fast to the words of of life, and it's just it's just an interesting phrase. It's very similar to what happened between Peter and Jesus when, I mean, thousands of people walked away. I mean, granted, that's that's a pretty unpopular season to be, you know, doing life with Jesus, you know. And uh, and and you know, you know, the, Jesus says, "So are you going to leave now too?" And Peter says, "You alone have the words of life. You alone." Today, that's that's what we've got. We have to hold fast to the truth, and that that holding fast. I mean, it, it's a, there's a whole like, you know, it's a it's a kind of a nautical term. It's a there's a whole there's a, tons of tattoos that that hold fast. Get your hands grip it, hold tight, don't let it go. The the implication there is that you've got to hold on to it because it's going to be there's, there's a. A sense in which the culture is going to want to rip it out of your hands and you and I have to clench our fist around truth. Already, the kinds of things that we're facing, you may have thought about this when Brian was sharing the other night around sexuality. Already, the kinds of things that we're facing would have made our grandparents shudder. Imagine turn of the century Christians hearing about our abortion rates and and we're facing things that they would have just they would have thought inconceivable but the word of life is still just as powerful just as effective and you know I don't know what my kids are going to face, and I'm sure that if Jesus doesn't return, it'd be something that would shock me, but I know that the word of life is going to be sufficient, yeah, amen. and so we're to hold fast, to courageously hold to and hold out the word of God as the only hope in exile. Maybe this is an area of strength for you as a church. You feel like, man, we've reproduced the heck out of these kinds of leaders. If that's you, don't pat yourself on the back. Thank God for that. It's an evidence of grace. Um, And I would encourage you to leverage that. Use it to help other leaders. Use it to multiply. If it's an area of weakness for you, then, man, I want to encourage you to, to reach out and get some help. Because... I mean, leadership isn't everything, but it's a lot. It's a lot. And, and, and our ability to continually reproduce good leaders in exile is one of the most catalytic things that you and I can do if we're going to lead well. I mean, the amount of, of, the amount of problems in churches that arise from just the wrong leaders, it, it's, it's just a massive, a massive percentage of that. And so I wanna encourage you, if this is something that you're like, gosh, this is a weakness for me, I feel like we bring through guys because of sentiment, because of experience, because of desperation, I don't know what to do, I don't know where to start, I would encourage you, just start by asking for help. I know it takes humility, but that's, that's okay, just start by saying, hey, I need some help in this area. Don't put it off, make it a priority. Trust God that in a year from now, you'll, you'll see some good leaders coming through, that, that's one of the most beneficial things that you and I can do to make it a non-negotiable that we are going to we're going to we're going to fight to produce the right kinds of leaders for exile. Amen.